Hello, I'm Charles Bowman, and welcome to this, our latest episode of Off the Agenda. Today, we're in the heart of the City of London, and I'm delighted to be joined by Lord Michael Hastings, whose extraordinary career has spanned the public, private, and not-for-profit sectors. He's worked in education, philanthropy, justice, and commercial business. He started his career as a teacher and then navigated his way through journalism and later became the head of public affairs at the BBC and later head of CSR. He sits as an independent peer on the House of Lords. He serves as a professor of leadership at the Stephen R. Covey Leadership Centre at the Huntsman Business School, was Chancellor at Regents University London, is an NAD at Saxon Banfield and is a Vice President at UNICEF UK and is a trustee for the Africa Philanthropy Foundation. And as we continue to highlight those whose own careers pave the way for the next generation of leaders, it is my great pleasure to welcome Lord Hastings to Off the Agenda. Lord Hastings, Michael, can I first of all say welcome to Off the Agenda and thank you so much for joining us today here in the heart of the city of London. You've had a very purposeful career across the public, private and not-for-profit sectors. You've worked in education, philanthropy, justice and commercial business and you've had an extraordinary array of different roles throughout the course of your life. Life started for you with a bit of a flip-flop between the UK and Jamaica. You were born in the UK, setting up essentially in Jamaica back in 1966 and then returning to the UK four years later. And you went to school at the Scarisbrook Boarding School, the Scarisbrook name being the name you chose, in fact, for your own peerage title a little later. Can you tell us a little more about that early time and how important or otherwise it was for you as a foundation for your future success? Well, you know, one of the wonderful things about being in Jamaica in the 1960s was seeing an island that had been a colony that was comprehensively at peace with itself. A motto out of many one people looking as, a, as we did every single day at people from Asian cultures, European cultures, North America, Africa and the Caribbean, melding, mixing freely. That was my first responses from 1966 to 1970. And then this terrible thing called democracy got in the way and the people elected a government that was pro-Cuban, which meant at the time, 1970, pro-USSR. And I'm sure many listeners will remember the Cuban Missile Crisis from the early 1960s, 1962. And they'll remember that America's sense of anguish about the USSR, we now like to call it Russia, but USSR, was very serious. So for Jamaica, which is literally just in the shadow of the US, to choose to elect a government in favor of a Cuban-Russian relationship was not very wise. And within a short space of time, what we had seen as this one people community, everyone at ease with themselves, broke down into fractious racial economic divides. And the people who had money left very fast. My brother's 
my father's uh, brother, who was a surgeon, left. His family left. So many of the people we knew as friends left. And the other thing that left was commerce, industry, jobs, employment. And we saw this one people culture, culture go into a place of fractious anguish, loss, became a drug haven, violent, a lot of turmoil, and poverty was in everybody's face. My parents said they would stay. My father had worked in the NHS in England in the 1950s and 60s, but he was adamant he was going to stay. Obviously, my mother was going to stay, but my brother and I got sent away to boarding school so that we were out of it. But what it did do for me was not make me run from poverty, but run towards it. So despite going to a privileged boarding school in the northwest of England, which was lovely, building was designed by Pugin, who designed the Palace of Westminster. It looks like the Palace of Westminster. Ironically, it made me more acutely focused on the needs of shattered and destitute communities. So I, at an early age, set my mind to be focused on poverty solutions. It was instinctive in me. I saw it. I witnessed it. I saw the danger and the damage of it. And I made my determination that I would focus on the poor for the rest of my life. And of course, then therefore, it was therefore the, a, a really important foundation for totally. much that, that happened there, thereafter. Yes. Uh, and beyond school and a spell in London at the Theological College, you went to Oxford University uh, to study teacher, teaching, teacher training. And then you began your own career as a teacher at Greenway Secondary School in Uxbridge, now the Uxbridge High School. What, what motivated uh, you and inspired you to take up that particular profession in your early career? Well, I think I'd had this wonderful faith realization. At the age of 14, I'd made a personal commitment to follow Jesus. And I was excited and turned on and motivated by my faith. And I still am. So from 14 to now 64, nothing has changed. 50 years have gone in between. I've just got more excited every day. And so when I, when I knew that Jesus was real and real for me and real for others, I wanted to become a teacher of those truths. But I didn't want to be a priest. I didn't want to be, a, uh, I didn't want to be in a church. What I wanted to do instead was to take to the classroom to communicate with young people about the value of faith and to help to unpick what the Bible was teaching that was relevant. And I chose a pretty, pretty rundown school. Um, it was a school that these days we would have said was failing and closed. But anyway, that's where I went. And I had five remarkable years uh, as the head of religious studies at that school. Absolutely loved it. Um, and then I got called into government service after that, which is kind of weird how it all happened. But those years of teaching, and, I, and I've comprehensively always believed that teaching is probably uh, amongst the top five most important professions in life. You know, so many young men and women I encounter now, besides talking about a loving mum, will often refer to a great teacher. And when they refer to that great teacher who fashioned their mind, now on the downside, you, you see what happens when teachers become exasperated, highly stressed, and therefore 
easily send kids off to the PRU if they want to if they want to expel them, uh, suspend them, or get them out of the way. Pupil referral units have become an easy way, especially for Black and Caribbean and African boys. But I'm a comprehensive supporter of teaching. I'm involved with many academy schools across London and the UK. Um, and of course, I'm a governor of a school in Kenya, in Nairobi. And of course, I'm the head of a university as well in London. So, so teaching's in my DNA. Um, I partly wish 1988 I'd been left alone to carry on teaching, but um, Margaret Thatcher came knocking on the door. So that, that was another story. Well, that's a very nice segue, because as you say, you later moved into government services in as early as 1986, 88. And that was to support policy initiatives to bring employment and to develop Britain's inner cities as much as anything. Um, I'm keen to understand what were your key and the key achievements uh, during that period, that important period, and ways in which the urban communities benefited from your and that work at that time? Well, many of your listeners and viewers will remember the turbulences, 1981, 1985, very serious riots. 21 cities in the UK went up in flames. Um, the famous Brixton riots, but the riots that were St. Paul's, Bristol, Moss Side in Manchester, Handsworth in Birmingham, even as far as Newcastle, riots in Coventry, riots in Hackney, there were large numbers of people, especially black disadvantaged communities, uh, and again, mainly men who had lost their jobs. We were going through a period in the economy of a complete political rewriting and an economic rewriting. And it was necessary for modernization and technology and industrial change. But the downside was job loss was heavy and rapid. And so many communities felt the strain of that and didn't feel government was on their side. So, you know, as Martin Luther King said, riots are the language of the unheard. And so people take to the streets and they burn things down. And you think, well, what does that create? Well, all it creates is a reaction. And in the end, the government under Margaret Thatcher's leadership sat up in 1986 and said, we can't have this again. We need somebody to be a broker for the peace. So I was asked to build connected relationships between the communities that had been wild and wandering, I wouldn't say bad, just furious and hurt and disadvantaged. And they needed to believe that there was a government, uh, there were civil servants, there were ministers, there were politicians who had a positive view about their potential. So my job was to literally build the connected relationships. And I loved it, I really loved it. Those five, six years where I would go from one city area to another, to another, to another, four or five on the same day, meeting with groups of furious individuals, bringing them together with the civil servants who had the money, helping initiate projects for employment, uh, making sure that apprenticeships came into place, rejuvenation of housing. It was a time for refreshing, rebuilding the broken walls. It was an extraordinary period. And you mentioned the importance of, of, of government understanding. How difficult was it for you to get the government to understand the roots of those local issues in the communities at that time? Well, I think, <laughs> sad to say, um, Charles, what helped was the weight of the insurance industry. Because the insurance industry leaned in on the government to say, you know, another round of this 
1986. I mean, we can't, we can't afford, it. We can't afford this. Mm. You know, you can only burn for so long and get away with it. And already millions, tens of millions has gone up in insurance claims. And, and, and of course, there's a sense too that those communities become fragile. And when they become fragile, of course, that becomes criminal and fearful. Uh, children can't walk the streets safely. You set up a culture of disconnection and anguish. Um, so there were, I think there was, it, it took, sad to say it, um, multiple impactful burnings and an insurance industry that, and a policing community that said, we can't manage this. Now it's when you put those three factors together, you then get a listening political class. Yes. <laughs> and it shouldn't be like that. It should be that you know that if you rip people's work out from under them and you give them no hope and no prospect for the next stage, where are they going to place their, their, their fear? They're going to put it out there on the streets. So, so, so let's change our ways and love people through tragedy. Moving a little on, in 1990, you moved into the world of journalism, producing programmes for TVM that actually looked at school failures and, and beyond that. And then you moved to the BBC where you presented the weekly Around Westminster uh, programme. So from school teacher through to government advisor to TV presenter. Gosh, that was quite a change. How, how did you bridge those gaps? The, the honest answer, Charles, is that I never asked, can I do this? I just said, oh, you've asked me to do this, let me have a go. And I've always had that um, kind of assumption in me that if somebody thinks I'm capable, then maybe I can rise beyond it. So when I was asked by the chairman of TVAM to come and make a television series about school failure, and then TVAM lost its franchise a year later, year and a half later, and then he said to me, we're gonna to have to lose a lot of people, but I'd like you to stay on and present a six to seven hour in the morning. I thought, oh, that's an interesting opportunity. I mean, I've never done it live TV staring at a, a camera and talking to an audience and interviewing people, but why not? And that then laid the ground for then going to GMTV and then to the BBC where I was doing a weekly politics program. And it was because of the weekly politics program that the then Director General's office at the BBC got in touch with me and they said, how about you come behind the camera and become our chief lobbyist in Parliament? Because we kind of like the way you talk to the politicians. You seem to get on with them very well. And I did get on with them well. And I got on with them, well, not because I was cynical of their lives and their jobs and their intentions, but because I saw the humanity in them and the, and the deep desire to do right by their constituents and by their office of government. And I've always maintained that view that although there are individuals who seek aggrandizement through politics, the vast majority seek service. That's extraordinary. Yes, as you say, from being in front of the camera, you moved to behind it and you became... Um, you headed up the public affairs of the B BBC and you became the head of the uh, BBC CSR team. And during that time, as I understand it, you supported the BBC's charter renewal and oversaw yes. uh, the annual increases in, in, in the levy. Yep. You, yep. you also fought off the, the Murdoch uh, campaign at that moment in time around sport. Yes. I, I suppose what I, I was uh, uh, keen to ask you is, in your view in relation to the BBC uh, levy today, uh, what would be your advice to the BBC in today's moment 
uh, in terms of content provision and widening of media access? I'm glad you asked me that because I, I have advice for the BBC and I have advice for the British public. And my advice for the BBC is constrain your output so that it better matches the expectations of the paying public. I would strongly urge a uh, either online or reduction in television services in particular, especially some of the channels which have very zero-based audiences. So cut the costs by removing things that clearly the public are not interested in. I think the BBC knows exactly which channels I'm talking about. Um, and also make sure that the news agenda is, because it's after all the politicians watch the news agenda, make sure that the news agenda is not populist, but is serious and less opinionated and more factual. Now, if the BBC takes some clever steps in those directions, I notice now constantly day in, day out, the BBC is promoting itself. I, I get that because it's the build-up to the next charter renewal or the next license fee consideration. So it's self-promoting. We get that. But the best promotion is what you watch just out of natural habit. So, and then my advice to the British public is, listen, a lot of younger men and women say to me, I'm not paying for that because I don't watch it. Well, I would argue, listen, should I not pay for libraries and hospitals because I don't use them either? I've only ever once been in an NHS hospital, once in my 64 years, and I don't go to libraries. I buy the books and have them at home. But I pay for public goods because public assets are for other people, not just for me. And the BBC is a public asset of intense value during the coronavirus crisis. Everybody needed the day-to-day -day information, locally, nationally, internationally, looking at the tragedy of war in Ukraine and other parts of the world, we need a reliable sources of information, not distorted, self-asserting aspects of news on social media. So the BBC is an asset of, of the establishment of our quality of life, not the establishment of our leadership, but of our day-to-day -day life. For that reason, pay it because it benefits others, but the BBC, take it seriously, more seriously, don't splash money on wild adventures. Instead, focus on what the public most need, accurate, detailed, objective information. And I assume that would apply equally to radio as it would Equally to radio. There are some fringe channels we can all think of that could deserve to be a little bit more silent. Very good. I mentioned philanthropy a little earlier in the introduction, and you led the merger of the crime concern with the Rainer Foundation to create the charity Catch-22, a charity yes. with 1,500 staff and volunteers supporting some 30,000 individuals from uh, cradle through to, uh, to, to career. Uh, what were your motivations for putting these two organizations together? Well, first of all, a quick thing on crime concern, which I'm very, very proud of. When I never forget when Douglas Hurd was the Home Secretary. He rang me up 1988, and, and you know, at that point, I was just 28 years of age, and he said, he said, would you mind creating an organization, we'll begin to fund it, which will find alternatives to imprisonment for young people who've committed crime? Now, of course, the minute he said something like that, my mind goes, yes, we've got to do this. And so we set up Crime Concern 1988 with a 250,000 pound grant from the Home Office. 21 years later, when I was still chairman, we were a £25 million organization with 
700 staff. And so I thought, well, how do we make this better? Because we could carry on doing what we're doing, but here's the Rainer Foundation. They're doing similar things to us, just a different geography in the UK. Let's put the two together. So the chairman of Rainer and myself decided, rather than being rivals, let's be friends. Let's become common advocates of the same cause. Merging the two organizations together gave us Catch-22. I've stayed as vice president of Catch-22. I've been involved, therefore, for 35 years in this kind of adventure. Now, why is it so important? It's important because the, whatever the systems of policing the courts, probation, imprisonment can do to constrain and restrain criminal activity out there, the reality is most people would rather have a voluntary experience of understanding the pain and distress caused by crime, which is why we created where we created Neighborhood Watch. We created victim support. We created many mechanisms to allow people to know how to manage better relationships in their communities. And of course, by working with young people, the 30,000 that Catch-22 works with all the time, I can pretty much guarantee very few of those young people are gonna end up in the system of criminal justice. They're going to be responsible citizens for the future. Fantastic. Can I, I, I wanted to talk to you about the many uh, honours conferred on you throughout your Too lifetime. Uh, and I, if I may list just a couple oh of them. Dear. Uh, for your work in the development of children in Africa, you, were, you earned the UNICEF Award for Outstanding Contribution to Understanding and Affecting Solutions for Africa's Children. You received an honorary doctorate in civil law from the University of Kent in recognition of your leadership, both within the BBC and KPMG. In 2003, you awarded a CBE for services to crime reduction. And in 2019, you became the first ever recipient of the Stephen R. Covey, Covey Leadership Award for a life built on principles and effective leadership, which I'll perhaps come back to in a minute, in business and public life. What impact have these honours had upon you, uh, and what do they mean for you personally? Well, they look nice at home, and, um, but most of them are kind of tucked away. Uh, the impact of them is, is, it's like my, the value of my peerage to the House of Lords. I can be actively involved in regulation, legislation, and the uh, accountabilities of government. But I can also create platforms of opportunity for others who are disconnected from the established power systems of our society. So each one of these awards, which is a joy to be given, each one of these awards allows me to help somebody else to have a vision for what's possible. Literally yesterday, a group of us, my friends and I, were in a youth offenders prison in Kent, in Rochester in Kent. The young men who are in there are all in there on serious crimes. One of them said to me at the very end, before you came in here today, all of you, there were 18 of us, mm -hmm. 12 of them, before you came in here today, I didn't know that black men could achieve the things that I've seen all of you achieve and speak about. I had no vision for the possibilities. So I've seen every honor, every award, as a platform to help somebody else to stand. And that's how I want to use them. 
What a lovely answer. What a wonderful answer. And you mentioned your peerage. Uh, you were twice offered the offered, uh, opportunity of a life peerage, but you turned that and those down um, as they were at that moment politically aligned. But eventually in 2005, the Independent uh, Appointments Commission approached you with an offer of sitting as a cross-bencher uh, and you accepted and became a life peer. Can you tell us a little bit more about that decision uh, and the decision-making process behind that? And also life as a peer, what it, what it does, what you do uh, more widely. It was, I, I will never forget the day when it was then the, my wonderful friend Paddy Ashdown, who was leader of the Liberal Democrats, he was standing down as leader of the Liberal Democrats. And um, I wasn't a Lib Dem. I've never been a member of any political party. I've never paid any money to any political party. And when I could vote, I had voted every way possible. So I couldn't be labeled. And I, when he rang up and he said that he'd been speaking to the prime minister and wanted to put me forward for a peerage, I was very touched, very honored and very surprised. But I couldn't take the offer because one, I was working at the BBC and that would have been politically impossible and unacceptable. But secondly, I didn't want the alignment to philosophies I wasn't necessarily committed to. So let it go. And if you let it go and don't become possessive of it and wait, and then it bounced back and it came back by the very wonderful Shirley Williams who suggested that maybe they could do this by putting me under an independent ticket, but it would have their name on it. I had to say no again because of the alignment. And then the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, created the Independent Appointments Commission and they came after me. So therefore it was genuinely independent. Uh, and what, you know, what I've said to so many wonderful young men and women is don't be impatient to get something, be patient to wait for the better offer and ride your time. If you build a life based on reputation, which is what I've tried to do, uh, let your reputation speak before you rather than your demand or your insistence or the position you feel you must have. So when it came along, it came at the right time. Um, being in the House of Lords is a remarkable privilege. We, we get to irritate, uh, question and change the actions of government. Um, I will never forget the one day never forget the one day when we were under huge governmental pressure under the Conservative government after in David Cameron's time um, to accept some House of Commons regulations to do with benefits for single parents. And the House of Lords wanted to resist what the Commons had accepted, which was to cut these benefits unacceptably tight. And we had three votes on that day, two Labour votes, one Liberal Democrat vote. And I remember going through the lobbies each one of the three times, voting to support single parents, not because we believe in thrashing out benefits for the sake of it carelessly, but because the callous way in which the cuts were being planned was unacceptable to us. We were surprised it was acceptable to the MPs, but it wasn't acceptable to us. And so we said no. And all the threats that came from number 10, we saw them off. And I think one of the wonderful things about the House of Lords is because it's not a job, because we're not paid, we get expenses, but we're not paid, because there's nothing more anybody can offer us, 
when we want to stand up for justice and stand up for the marginalized and stand up for people's dignity, we're free to do that. What a great answer. And you do that in an independent, objective way. Exactly. And a non-political way. And one of the joys of being a crossbencher, of course, is we have no control. So nobody's telling us that we have to be there. We have to vote this way. We have to go through that corridor. We have to think this. We have to say that which applies to the Conservatives, to Labour, to the Lib Dems, and to the party machine. So being a crossbencher gives you genuine, flexible freedom to live a life where you can input, but not be limited. Fantastic. On, on leadership, you mentioned earlier, you pride yourself, indeed you've demonstrated yourself to be a very purposeful and effective leader. What does effective and purposeful leadership mean to you? And what advice would you offer to others around leadership? Well, I have, um, well, so first let me, I think that leadership should come from purpose. And, um, it, and it shouldn't be a happenstance of the moment. You know, we, we make the assumption someone's elected to or appointed to a position, that makes them a leader. No, it doesn't. Leadership comes out of purpose. So what is, what is anyone's purpose? It should be their personal manifesto, their, their why, the thing they get up for every single day. And for me, I, I was able to make that statement of purpose at the age of 16. My dear friend at school said, what are you going to do with yourself for the rest of your life? Which is a great 16-year-old question to ask. And I said, in reply, I've never forgotten it. I said, I want to speak for the poor and I want to bend the power of the prosperous to the potential of the poor. And that became my mantra. So everything would fall under that canopy. I would only do things that brought those who are marginalized into the forefront. Now, that then gives you a platform in which you may well do the most, or the, rather the least obvious thing about leadership. And here I'll pick on a great example from recent times. One, I think probably one of the most undeniably successful, significant, and statesman, woman-like leader was Angela Merkel, leading Germany over her 16 years. And what was she noted for in that time? Not incredible speeches and platform performances because she never gave them, but for consistency, reliability, integrity, uh, a lack of any sense of self-importance, simplicity, and her comprehensive desire to benefit Syrian refugees during the Syrian refugee crisis. There was a woman who knew her purpose and expressed it by being diligent and competent. That's incredible leadership. I very much like that message, leadership driven by purpose, purpose, purpose. We share a few things in, in common. Uh, we're both freemen of the city of London, yeah. members of livery companies, in your case, the, the worshipful company of Haberdashers. But we also share uh, a passion in developing our next generation yes. of leaders, the leaders of tomorrow. Why is that so important to you? I, you know, Charles, I think when you, when, not just when you get as old as I am, and obviously I'm obviously older than you, I imagine, but when you get old, you, you have two choices, which is to retire in your mind or to dig in better and deeper and re-energize. And I feel that the duty that sits on us because we've had opportunity, titles, privileges, places, dinners, lunches, engagements, opportunities, travel, positions, employments, 
big bank accounts, all those things. The duty that sits on us is to enable another generation to have the same ambitions, if not greater. So constantly, constantly raising aspirations, raising perspectives, um, sharing the best of what we've learned. Because after all, if you just sit silently and it becomes stodgy in your stomach, you'll have comprehensive sickness. But if you release it outwards, express, share, give, embrace, um, bring people into the circle. I really believe always, never go anywhere that's grand and don't take somebody with you. Just make sure you spread the joys that are given to you. And some of those joys become gems for others' advantage. And that to me is incredibly invigorating. I mean, I, my, my children always say to me, when are you going to stop and retire? To which the answer is, if I stop, what am I going to be valuable for? All I'll be valuable for is myself. So what's the point of that? If your mission and your purpose is to benefit those least advantaged. You better carry on doing it till you can't breathe anymore. Michael, that's another wonderful answer. Thank you for, for that. And it brings me really to my final question. And that is one that I ask everybody on Off The Agenda. We live in increasingly complex, challenging and indeed changing times. What would be the lines of support, encouragement, hope, aspiration that you would give to that younger generation as they start into the world and they begin their own career journey? Well, we'll all remember Donald Rumsfeld, who was the US Secretary for Defense, and he talked about the known unknowns. <laughs> and all the things, he, he also said, the things we know that we don't know, and the things we don't know that we don't know. And I, I, as a chancellor of a university, and now as the chairman of a university and the head of a school, often say to all my students is, listen, remember, we can see what you know because it's on your qualifications. But you have no idea what you don't know. There's more out there you don't know. So become curious, ask questions every single day. You go into a circle of people, don't assert yourself, find out who they are. Ask questions of the other people. Spend time on your phone discovering information. Useful, fascinating, curious, intriguing. Look at the world beyond your own environment and take a, take a perspective on cities and countries and cultures that are different to your own. Look at animal programs and look at the natural world that you may never have touched but is there and see history through a lens of its lessons, not its failures. And I believe that the most important thing any young man or woman can do is to keep seeking for what's unknown. Wonderful answer. Curiosity, seeking the un unknown. Michael, that is a wonderful way to finish. Thank you so, so much for joining us today on Off The Agenda. Thank you for all that you have done, do, and will continue, I have no doubt, to, to do going forward. And we wish you all the very, very best ahead. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you, I've loved it. Well, it's been a real honor and privilege to speak to Lord Michael Hastings today, to hear his inspirational story and stories. Thank you, Lord Hastings, and thank you all for listening. That's all from me, other than to say, as always, stay tuned for more conversations, great discussions, and inspirational guests. Thank you again. 
and bye for now.